We're going to look at a few scriptures now in order to talk about God's providence in American history and also answer the question, is it right for a Christian to be patriotic? Is it right for a Christian to be uh, celebrate America, America's independence? Here it is, Independence Day, right? Is it right for a Christian to celebrate that independence and be patriotic and, you know, and things like that? And I want to break that down from God's Word today. And I need to make a disclaimer. This may be the longest sermon I've ever preached. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, if you follow the manuscript, I'm going to be skipping large paragraphs today. Because as with any sermon, it's always difficult to think, what, what do you cut? And as I was looking at excerpts and quotes and things from books today, I thought, well, this is just as difficult as ever. So I'm going to be summarizing some things. And if you want the complete thing, there's copies of the manuscript in the back. You can pick them up as, as you go. The full manuscript is on my blog, which is linked on our website. So I'm going to be do, doing some summarizing. Uh, so as most of you know, President Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. You probably all know that, right? You learned that in, in elementary school. Maybe, maybe they even still teach that. President Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. David McAuliffe in his 2001 biography of John Adams. By the way, I have that biography in my office. It's a phenomenal biography. And HBO made a miniseries based off of it. And it's very well done as well, though it did change a few things and a few inaccuracies. But David McAuliffe in his 2001 biography of Adams says, Jefferson offered the job to Adams, but Adams declined for several reasons. Jefferson was from Virginia. Jefferson was younger and possessed, as Adams said, a peculiar felicity of expression. And the Virginian wasted no time in submitting a draft to Continental Congress. Jefferson worked quickly without access to his library and produced a draft in about three weeks. The committee presented its draft to Congress on June 28th. The Second Continental Congress actually passed the resolution for independence on July 2nd, 1776. But the wording for the declaration wasn't officially approved until July 4th. And that, of course, is a date that will go down in American history. Interestingly enough, uh, it was not completely signed by all of them until something like August because people were going here and there and everywhere. And as most of you know, uh, there are things written about the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And if caught, most of them would have hung together if they were caught by the British. They had done this with great cost. And it's quite funny because... Um, Jefferson, uh, John Adams, would say things to Jefferson like, people like you. <laughs> he had that charisma. People did not generally like John Adams. He was a brain. He was brilliantly smart. Him and, and John Quincy Adams, his son as well, but he didn't have that charisma. And Jefferson worked quickly, and I, I read or actually listened to an audiobook about Jefferson a couple years ago. Very good audiobook called The Art of Power about Thomas Jefferson. And he takes a Declaration of Independence to the Continental Congress. And what did they do? They just nitpicked and picked it apart with their symbolic red ink. And it bothered him so much. But after it was all written and voted on, it, I believe, was a masterpiece. The, so Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, though, maintained a close friendship. A very close friendship. But that, that friendship between Jefferson and Adams was eventually tested. Uh, Jefferson and Adams found themselves on differing opinions on political issues. Sound familiar? 
And they had such a bitter rivalry. Jefferson was Thomas Jefferson's, uh, Jefferson was Adams vice president. But even during that time, they had a very rocky relationship. And eventually, Jefferson um, followed Adams as the, as the third president of the United States. And Adams did not stay around for the, for the inauguration. But eventually, they started writing letters to each other. Around 1812, 1813, Abigail Adams... Uh, started writing letters to Jefferson, and they had a restored relationship. And they wrote letters to each other back and forth until their death. And most of you probably know this. If not, you'll learn. They actually died on the same day. They both died on July 4th, 1826, on the 50th anniversary of our country. They both died. Two of our founding fathers both died on the 50th anniversary of our country. How amazing that is. In fact, they both said they wanted to get to that day. They wanted to live to that day. Jefferson was something like 83 years old. I have it in writing if you read that later on. And Adams was something like 90 or 91, 92 years old, which was certainly way past the average. And they both died on the 50th anniversary of our country. How amazing that is. If I recall, and I think I have this in my notes if you read them later, uh, Thomas Jeff uh, John Adams, right before he died, said, Jefferson survives. But he didn't know Jefferson had died just a few hours before him. But they both died on the 50th anniversary. And during that time, the president was John Quincy Adams, Thomas, uh, John Adams' son. So today I intend to, show, to answer the question, should we as Christians be proud to be an American? And, 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 and in that way, should we as Christians be patriotic? Further, we should talk about God's providence in America's history. God's providence in America's history. And, and so I want to answer the question first. What is providence? What is providence? And when I think of providence, I think of God's sovereignty, meaning that God is in control of all things. And, and when I think of providence, I, I want to say that God uses that sovereignty to orchestrate the details of life. God uses his sovereignty to orchestrate the details of life. God is the omnis, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. And God, being all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere, can you, it, it, he's sovereign. He's in control. And he uses that sovereignty to orchestrate certain things of life. John Piper uh, wrote his longest book, came out last January, and I quickly got it and went through it. It's called Providence. And in the beginning, he defines providence as purposeful sovereignty. Purposeful sovereignty. John Piper writes, the word providence is built from the word provide. Provide, which has two parts. Pro, which is, which, which is Latin for forward or on behalf of, forward or on behalf of, and vide, which is Latin to see. So, you know, God can see forward, behalf of, but, but it's more than that. He, he writes, so you might think that the word provide would mean just to see forward or to foresee, but it doesn't. It means to supply what is needed, to supply what is needed, to give sustenance or support. So in reference to God, the noun providence has come to mean the act of purposeful, purposefully providing for. God uses his act of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. God purposefully provides for and sustains and governs the world. If we do not believe in God's providence, we might as well not pray. 
But when we recognize that God is sovereign and he uses that sovereignty in purposeful ways to, to interact with culture and change world events, then we can pray to him and he can, he can have his will. So I want to talk about God's purposeful sovereignty in American history. And also, is it right for us as Christians to be patriotic? The United States of America was grounded on a biblical worldview pretty much. They weren't perfect. But pretty much, Judeo-Christian values. And I want to share two ground rules, and I'm copying these from the Truth Project Lesson 10, which I just began in Sunday school. We need to remember, though, that you know, even though I talk about God's providence in America's history, we must remember this is not to say that the United States is God's chosen people. Our country has not become God's chosen people. The chosen people would be the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament. And I still believe God has a plan for Israel, still his chosen people. God's providence just means that he has exercised his divine will in our history. He has exercised his sovereignty in our history. We, we, we must not deify America or our founders. and We must not idolize America. In other words, we must be Christians first. And Americans second. We'll come back to that. I do reject Christian nationalism. By my understanding, Christian nationalism combines the church and state in a literal combination. Okay, it's good for Christians to be involved in government. It's good for the leaders to represent and and even legislate uh, Christian values. I believe that's good because God, those are God's values. But that does not mean we should combine uh, church and state. Christian nationalism, uh, Christian nationalism would say, as goes the country, so goes the church. They combine the church and state. The church and the state are not the same. Uh, we are, and, and Christian nationalism would weave in that that um, that we are God's chosen people. America is God's chosen people, and we really can't do that. Okay. Um, I will make the case, though, that we do see God's providence in American history. And further, I will make the case that we should be patriotic, but we still are Christians first and Americans second. Second. Christianity is good for the country. I believe Christianity is good for America, and we see that in our history. But remember also, the church usually does do well in persecution. I don't think we are to desire persecution, but Christians usually do shine in persecution. So again, to repeat probably for the fourth time, my focus is on God's providence in America's history and the question, should Christians be patriotic? So let's turn to scripture, and first we're going to answer the question, should Christians be patriotic? And let's look at uh, Romans chapter 9-3, because we have to look first at what does the Bible say? What, what matters is not what I say or even what you say. It matters what the Bible says. So in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, you should all have that memorized because I preached on it last Sunday, right? In Romans chapter 9, verse 3, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In that passage, the Apostle Paul really cared that his people, the Jewish people, would know Christ. Right? We talked about that last week. The Apostle Paul would rather that he himself is accursed. And if you look up that Greek word, it's anathema. It means he would rather himself go to hell so that the Jewish people, his brothers, his kinsmen would be saved. 
In that passage, the Apostle Paul really cared about his people. In a direct way, we can make the application that we must care that our, that our nation, our ethnic group, our people know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Indirectly, I believe we can apply this to the idea of being patriotic. The Apostle Paul cared about his ethnicity. He cared about his people, the Jewish people. And so in, in like manner, we should also care about our people as well. We should want the best for our country. Of course we should. Romans 9 also shows that God can control nations the way he wants to. God has chosen Israel above other nations. He exercised that sovereignty, that providence throughout the Old Testament. I still think he is. I mean, what other nation that goes back uh, to 2000 BC when God called Abraham is still in existence. But yet, with, with everything the Israelites faced, he brought them back in 1948. God was exercising his providence. And I, I think America had a hand in that too. We'll come back to that in a minute. In John 17, 18, this is another scripture about being patriotic. In John 17, 18, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. That's John 17, 16. And then there's one more passage, 1 Timothy 1, 2. So again, we are in the world, but we're not to be worldly. We're not to be corrupted by the world, but we have to be in the world. So another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We are to pray for our leaders. We are to be concerned for our leaders. We we are to want the best for our country. That passage is telling us that. Whether we like them or not, we should pray for our leaders. C.S. Lewis wrote a book titled The Four Loves, and in that book he distinguishes phileia, friendship, eros, which is sexual love, agape, which is the love of God, and the one that is important here, storge. And this following paragraph or two comes from John Piper, um, so I'm quoting the source, I'm not plagiarizing here. Uh, Storge, he writes, is a kind of affection love. John Piper got it from C.S. Lewis, so we're all plagiarizing here. Uh, Storge is a kind of affection love. We should, as Christians, have an affection for our country. That's one type of Greek word for love. And so we, as Christians, should have a type of affection for our country. That that is the type of love we should have for our country. When When we leave our country, we are likely happy to come home. This is home. We love home. When we see our country losing certain good values, that disappoints us, right? Some of you may feel like you cannot recognize the country that you love. You can't recognize it anymore. But you have that storge love for the country. You have that storge affection for the country. And so it hurts you when you see the country lose values that maybe you even fought for. But this is not a love like you have for a spouse or a child or for God. That would be agape. This is an affection. This is storge love. So yes, in that sense, we should love our country. We, country. we should support our country. We should be patriotic. We should be proud to be an American. We should care that our people, the people of our nation are saved. We should want the best for our nation. Christians should be the best citizens. We can go to see other passages. Romans 13 is about being submissive to authorities. We also see that same idea in 1 Peter 2, 12 through 17. But but, but what about God's providence in America's history? So that's the first question. The first question, should Christians be patriotic? Yes, we should. We should be the best citizens. We should care about our country. We should pray for our leaders. We should share the gospel. We should, like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 9, 3, we should 
desire, totally desire that our people group come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And what is the best for our country? The best for our country is a biblical worldview. The best for our country is for people to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. When we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we cross from death to life and angels to a party in heaven in worship. So what about God's providence in America? You know, this is a day we celebrate Independence Day. And so remember God's providence as purposeful sovereignty. Has God shown purposeful sovereignty over America? I'm a student of history and I think he has. I think as I study history, God has shown great providence in our history. How did we beat England twice? Actually, I wanted to pause after that. How did we beat England twice? There, for, if, for effect, okay? <laughs> That's why we love commas. How do we beat England? We should not have beat England in the Revolutionary War, and we still should not have beat England in the War of 1812. Now, granted, during the War of 1812, England was kind of tied up with Napoleon and Europe as well, but they could have cleaned us up later, and they didn't. Uh, there's a book titled The American Miracle by Michael Medved, and he writes this. He said, his contemporaries on both sides of the conflict suggested the Continental Army benefited from a series of unusual natural phenomena in a pattern of illogical but consistent good luck that, it, that in the painful summer of 1776 rescued troops from all but certain catastrophe. Now, who controls natural phenomena? God. Who controls... Good luck. God, right? God is sovereign, purposeful sovereignty. On July 3rd, 1775, the Virginian George Washington arrived in the capital, Philadelphia, to take command of these courageous but undisciplined New England forces who had come together under the grand title Continental Army. The new top general worried over their vulnerability to British attack. And in one of his periodic bouts of self-pity... George Washington told his military aide, Joseph Reed, that he never would have accepted his command had he known of the perilous position in which he found himself. He said his only hope involved the necessary intervention of a higher power. God did provide weather to help us win. Washington should not have survived. George Washington, as most of you probably know, had many incidences, some of them when he was 23 years old, that should have killed him. But I believe God had him in place for a time for a reason. Medved writes again, Washington's successful defiance of danger became a notable feature of his leadership during his eight years of service in the Revolutionary War. The general-in-chief frequently and fearlessly exposed himself to enemy fire, rallying his troops on many occasions by his own incomparable example. Again, I'm reading by this book by Michael Medved. He continues, At the Battle of Princeton in January 1777, Washington rode at the head of his troops on a huge white horse as they marched directly on a well-formed British line. When the Americans came within range, both sides fired and smoke from their rifles temporarily obscured Washington, who rode forward halfway between them. His aide, Richard Fitzgerald, covered his face with his hat in order to avoid watching the inevitable death of his beloved commander. But as the air cleared and he lowered his hat, he saw men on both sides who were dead and dying, while Washington, unscathed, rose in his stirrups and urged his men forward against the, the, the shattered British line. 
It's a fine fox chase, my boys, Washington shouted. A year and a half later, in June 1777, the Marquis de Lafayette, the aristocratic Frenchman who became an esteemed general in the Continental Army, recalled the great man, Washington, at the Battle of Monmouth, where General Washington seemed to arrest fortune with one glance. His presence stopped the retreat. His graceful bearing on horseback, his common deportment, which still retained a trace of displeasure were all calculated to inspire the highest degree of enthusiasm. Marc A. de Lafayette said, I thought then, as now, that I had never beheld so superb a man. On September 8, 1779, Washington was spared by a marksman. He had him in his sights. He didn't shoot him because he wouldn't shoot someone in the back. I'm sure you've heard the stories that Washington shook bullets out of his jacket. He had horses shot out from under him. Three years ago, I listened to an extensive uh, biography of George Washington. It's over 1,000 pages long. Really good. I highly recommend it. Uh, you can get it even as an audiobook, And it's by Ron Chernow. And this is very interesting about Washington. It, and this is about God's purposeful sovereignty. Listen to what Chernow writes. He says, in the end, he, that is Washington, had managed to foil the best professional generals that a chase in Great Britain could throw at him. As Benjamin Franklin told an English friend after the war, quote from Franklin, an American planter was chosen by us to command our troops and continued during the whole war. This man sent home to you, one after another, five of your best generals, Baffled, baffled, their heads bare of laurels, disgraced even in the opinion of their employers. Our founders were not all Christians, though most were, and all pretty much held to a Judeo-Christian worldview. Even Franklin, who I do not think was a Christian, still believed in a Judeo-Christian worldview. And even Jefferson, who was most likely a deist, thought the Bible should be taught in schools. So what about other Instances of God's sovereignty in American history, God's providence. How did we win the second war with England, the War of 1812? You know, I was watching this History Channel documentary years ago. It was like 10, 12, 15 years ago. And during the War of 1812, the British came and they burned Washington, D.C. You probably all learned about that in elementary school, right? And uh, if, if not, I'm teaching you now. Yes, the British burned Washington, D.C., including the White House. And they were leaving there and they were heading to Baltimore. And they were stopped. You know what stopped them? A hurricane. A hurricane took out more of the British on their way to Baltimore than our troops could have done at that point. That's, I believe, God's purposeful sovereignty, God's providence in American history. Some could say that these things are coincidences, but I don't believe in coincidence. I believe that God has been working through history. Recently, I read that Winston Churchill was visiting New York City in 1931. Now, Winston Churchill... Uh, it certainly was, well, he's half American, actually, he was half American, and he was instrumental to World War II. And in 1931, he didn't look both ways, crossing the street, and he was hit and ran over by a car. He survived. Why'd he survive? There are many things that I believe where God was pro had, had his providence, his purposeful sovereignty in Winston Churchill's life as well, just to show that Winston Churchill later helped England and the United States win World War II. But why? Why would there be many things in which God acted to help America? Now, let me say right now 
God has providence in history even when there are countries without Judeo-Christian values. If you read through the Old Testament, God used Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to conquer the Israelites because of their sinfulness. But why would there be many things in which God act, acted to help America? And, and I ultimately can't answer that question. But I want to suggest a few things. And these are just suggestions. These are not inspired. Okay? We were founded on biblical values. And I believe there's a common grace blessing when we follow God's values. Yes, we did have sins in our history. Every, every people group has. But overall, we were founded on Judeo-Christian values, Jewish-Christian values. And there is a common grace blessing when we follow God's values. I believe, and I'm more and more convinced, the more I read and studied, a lot of this came from the Puritan values from the 1600s. The Puritans came here in the 17th century, 1600s. And a lot of those values carried right on to our nation's founding. In fact, the first Great Awakening was in the 1730s. 30s and 1740s and 1750s and actually even late 1600s. And, and that set us up for being founded on Judeo-Christian values. And again, I believe there is a common grace blessing there. We have many, many quotes from our founders. And you could see this in the Truth Project Lesson 10, which I started in Sunday school. You can see it in other books. Our founders recognized that we needed to teach Christian values. John Adams wrote this. He said, Statesmen, my dear sir, may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. Adams went on to say that our, country, our, our, our Constitution was written for a moral and religious people. It was written for a moral and religious people. Others of our founding fathers actually said, without morality and religion, it, 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 it's not even worth the paper it's written on. It was based on a biblical worldview. In George Washington's farewell address on September 17, 1796, Washington said the following. He said, and let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. He said... Be cautious to think that morality can be maintained without religion. He said, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principles. Washington is saying you can't have morality without religious principles. Reason and experience shows that you will not have morality without religious principles. Benjamin Rush, one of our founders, uh, who started the first anti-slavery group, and he said, the only foundation for a republic is to be laid in religion. Christianity is the only true and perfect religion, and that in proportion as mankind adopt its principles and obey its precepts, they will be wise and happy. So our country was founded on, biblical, on a biblical worldview with Judeo-Christian values, where it started with God, and then it went to government or state, and then it went to the people. Now, it's not just our country right now. It's everywhere for the most part. But right now, the state or the government has taken the place of God. And when you do that, there's no foundation for morality. It goes along with the brilliant quotes that I just read from Adams and Benjamin Rush and, and, and George Washington saying, you can't have morality without a the Bible, without a biblical worldview. Where do we get right from wrong? Last week, there was a Miss State pageant. I think it was Nevada or Utah or Colorado. I think it was Nevada. And a transgendered one, the Miss Nevada. Well, it may not have been Nevada. It might have been Colorado. But a transgendered one that 
contest. Therefore, a biological man beat out all the biological women for that contest. Without the Bible, where do we even get our worldview? There is no worldview. There is no right and wrong. And when you get into the extent of liberalism, I mean biblically and morally, not politically in this, in this context. When you get to that extent of liberalism, what happens is you can never go far enough. You always have to go further and 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 further. And that's where it's going right now. So we as Christians, what are we to do? Be patriotic, as I just said. Recognize God's providence in in life, which we're going to come back to in a moment. And make sure that we hold true to a biblical worldview. And we recognize James 4.4 is true. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And as we look at things going on in our world, make sure first and foremost we are Christians. And make sure certainly we are praying. And make sure we are good citizens, obeying God first and foremost. But also have, you know, um, an illuminated reasoning of why what's going on is going on why is what's going on going on because we've lost a biblical worldview we have nothing to ground values nothing at all to ground values nothing's replaced that biblical worldview uh, the Quran hasn't replaced it, and generally, Islam doesn't really work in, in countries set up like ours. That hasn't replaced it, and that would be pretty bad too. Uh, but nothing. It's postmodernism at its, at its extremes. So that is one of my thoughts about why God had providence in American history. It's because we are founded with Judeo-Christian principles on a Judeo-Christian worldview, on a biblical worldview, and there's common grace with that. Now, secondly, just to move on here, uh, we have always, secondly, we have always supported the Jewish people and later Israel, Genesis 12. Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless, those who curse you, I will curse. And I believe there is a common grace blessing because we did support the Jewish people and we did support Israel. We haven't always been perfect in this way, but we have done that, by the way. Also, I want to say, I I need to back up. You know, our country was founded with freedom of religion, definitely, but we were still founded on Judeo-Christian values, a a Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, Next, I want to say that could it be that God was providentially acting in our history so that we could be available to help Europe in World War I and World War II? What would have happened if we weren't there and available to go and help them during that time? Could God have providentially acted in our past in order that we could help Israel in 1948? And remember, these are just thoughts. We aren't like other superpowers. Isn't it amazing? Think about American history. We will annihilate a country and then help them rebuild. That's not what Rome did. That's not what Greece did. That's not what Persia did. That's not what Babylon did. But we did that with Japan, and we did that with Germany, and we've done that with with many other countries. That's not to say we're perfect. We went in, and we did move the Native Americans off the land, and we had some heavy, heavy sins in our past with that, which I believe we have recognized today. Lastly, I want to say, do you know that most of the mission money comes from the United States? I heard the statistic once, something like 90% of the international mission support comes from the United States. This is not to say that God will continue to providentially guide the United States. I don't see our name in Revelation. If we are there, we are likely connected with Babylon. I'm just saying that in history, I see God working through the United States. So again, yes, we should be proud to be an American. And yes, we should be patriotic. And yes, we should want the best for our country. Warning, though, don't make the country your idol. 
Remember, we are Christians first. America is not the promised land. We are not the new Israel. In Philippians 3.8, Paul counted all of his Jewish status as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Jesus must be number one. Yes, we should be proud to be an American, but we must not make an idol of our country. Some applications. We must understand that God is at work. We must understand that God is at work in his providence, working through nations. We must be good citizens, really caring about our people group, as Paul did in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. We must pray for our leaders. Anytime you want to complain about a leader, pray for the leader. That's from 1 Timothy 2. We must not make our country an idol. We must be Christians first and Americans second. You know, to this day... Adams and Jefferson remained the only two presidents to have expired, to have died on the same day. And only one other president had the honor of dying on the glorious fourth. We've had three, three of our four, four, uh, first four presidents to die, died on the 4th of July. That, that was James Monroe. The fifth president of the United States, wounded veteran of the Revolutionary War, and a close colleague of both Jefferson and Adams, also died on July 4th. He died at 3.15 in the afternoon on July 4th, 1831. Some have talked about the odds that four of our first five presidents to die would to die on July 4th, and the odds are astronomical. Is that God's providence? I don't know. But we do see many, many times in our first almost, what, 250 years now, where we have struck good luck. But I don't believe in good luck. I believe God's providence in America's history. It is July 4th. I think as Christians, we should, we, we, we should celebrate our history. We should be patriotic. Certainly don't celebrate the bad in our history. Own that. But there has been plenty of good in American history. As Christians, we should be the best citizens. We must pray for our country. We must recognize God's hand in our history, but also see God's providence in everyday life. God is still at work. And usually, I'll tell you, I don't like... These types of sermons. <laughs> Usually, I believe the sermon should be totally expository from Scripture. But I thought, since July 4th fell on a Sunday, I would talk about this, and I hope it's been helpful. On Friday, I heard a Johnny Cash song titled Ragged Old Flag. It was written in 1974 at the height of the Watergate scandal. He later said he wanted to reaffirm faith in the country and the goodness of the American people, despite the painful political turmoil. And this is how it goes. I'm, I'm not going to sing. I'll just read it. Though Johnny Cash really doesn't sing, I don't think. He just kind of talks deep. Or did. He's with the Lord now. He says this. He says, I walked through a, con- uh, a county courthouse square. On a park bench, an old man was sitting there. I said, your old courthouse is kind of run down. He said, nah, it'll do for our little town. I said, your old flagpole has leaned a little bit. And that's a ragged old flag you got hanging on it. He said, have a seat. And I sat down. Is this the first time you've been to our little town? I said, I think it is. He said, I don't like to brag, but we're kind of proud of that ragged old flag. You see, we got a little hole in that flag there when Washington took it across the Delaware. And it got powder burned the night Francis Scott Key sat watching it, writing, say, can you see? And it got a bad rip in New Orleans with Packingham and Jackson tugging at its seams. And it almost fell at the Alamo beside the Texas flag. But she waved on, th- on though. She got cut with a sword at Chancellorsville, and she got cut again at Shiloh Hill. There was Robert E. Lee, Beauregard, and Bragg, and the south wind blew hard on that ragged old flag. On Flanders Field in World War I, she got a big hole 
from a Bertha gun. She turned blood red in World War II. She hung limp and low a time or two. She was in Korea and Vietnam. She went where she was sent by Uncle Sam. She waved from our ships upon the briny foam. And now they've about quit waving her back here at home. In her own good land, here she's been abused. She's been burned, dishonored, denied, and refused. And the government for which she stands is scandalized throughout the land. And she's getting threadbare and wearing thin. But she's in good shape for the shape she's in. Because she's been through the fire before. And I believe she can take a whole lot more. So we raise her up every morning. We take her down every night. We don't let her touch the ground. And we fold her up right. On a second thought, I do like to brag. Because I'm mighty proud of that ragged old flag. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you in prayer right now. Thankful for the freedoms we have in our country. And though we are thankful, Lord God, I'm sure that many of us are disheartened. We remember that our freedoms truly were not free. Men and women fought and died and sacrificed their lives for our freedom. But we also do thank you and we do remember also that you work through history. You work through nations and countries and through individuals and through leaders and through common citizens. And we see, Lord God, your providence in American history. But we also see the commands for us to be good citizens, to pray for our leaders, as 1 Timothy 2 says. To care, as Romans 9, 3 says, that our people know you as Lord and Savior. And Lord God, I pray, as we walk out of here, we would be encouraged and exhorted to be the best citizens, submissive to authorities, as Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, 11, 12, and following says, praying for our leaders, and alongside that, witnessing of the gospel. We know, Lord God, most important thing is that people know you as Lord and Savior. And may we be in a relationship with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.